millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 17 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. On October 7, 1987, in Bristol city centre, the young woman was sat in her car at Cannons Marsh car park. She had left a party at a nearby public house. Before she started the engine, she noticed a man who she did not know, slowly walking towards the car. He pried open the door and put a gun into his intended victim's face. The dark-haired man told the woman that providing she did what he said, she would not get hurt. He motioned that she get into the passenger seat. A wave of anger slowly washed over the woman, and rather than comply with the gunman's demands, she lashed out, repeatedly striking the assailant with all her might. She continually punched him, and swinging around she attempted to kick out, forcing the man to back away. The woman managed to quickly pull the door closed and lock the vehicle. Chillingly, 
The gunman seemed completely calm throughout the entire incident. He remained stone-faced, almost visibly unattached from the abduction he had just attempted. The woman drove away. In the rearview mirror, she could see the man slowly stroll off, with his hands in his pockets. The next day, Shirley Banks was doing some clothes shopping during the evening of Thursday, October 8th, 1987. After buying a new navy and white-spotted evening dress with a pair of matching tights and shoes, the sales manager in her late 20s walked from the Broadmead Centre to her orange mini clubman car that was parked nearby. Shirley recently returned from Italy, where she had enjoyed a honeymoon with her new husband, Richard. They had only been married for six weeks. The wedding ceremony was held close to where Shirley attended school in Yeovil. Shirley and Richard had been living together for the last four years and met when Shirley was in her early twenties. Friends described the pair as being blissfully happy. That night, Richard planned to take Shirley out for a candlelit dinner. Born in Edinburgh during the late 50s, Shirley Ann Banks spent the first few years of her life in Scotland. Her family relocated to Liverpool, then moved to Somerset when she was in her early teens. Shirley was bright and an accomplished musician having taken up and mastered both the piano and violin. She attended Bristol Polytechnic studying management, then found employment for a travel company before working at Alexandra, suppliers of workwear uniforms. The company's head office was on Britannia Road in Bristol. Shirley was nicknamed Smiley by her family. She always seemed happy. She grew up with her two younger siblings, Alison and Gillian. It was Gillian who introduced her to Richard, Shirley's future husband. On the morning of October 8th, Richard kissed Shirley, unaware it would be the last time his wife would walk out the door and never return. That day, Shirley had been to work before briefly going home to change her clothes. She dressed in a cream jumper and leggings and headed out on her impromptu shopping trip. She met up with a friend and co-worker, Jean de Vivier. It was in the department store Debenhams, where Shirley purchased her dress before heading to Marks and Spencer's to buy some tights and shoes. The last time she was spotted was shortly after half past seven. Richard had planned to take his wife for dinner. He was celebrating after securing a large contract for the company where he worked. He left the office, then went out for a few drinks. Richard arrived at the Avon Gorge Hotel sometime after half past six, drinking with friends until 8pm, when he called home and expected to speak to Shirley. 
she did not answer. Richard continued drinking, assuming that his wife was out with friends. He returned to the home they shared in the suburb of Clifton and then went to the local pub. Perhaps Shirley might be there. But she wasn't. Still believing that Shirley would return, Richard got home before 11pm under the assumption that his wife was enjoying herself on a night out. He awoke the next day and Shirley was not lying beside him. Now he really started to worry. Richard contacted all of her friends and acquaintances before going to Redland Police Station to report her disappearance. There was no sign of her orange mini clubman and there had been no contact between husband and wife. Perplexingly, however, the office where Shirley worked received a phone call from a person who claimed to be Shirley, telling them that she would not be in the office that day. The woman, presumed to be Shirley, did not speak to anyone in the company that she knew, as they were put through to the wages team who took the message. As the days and weeks passed... Several calls were also received by Shirley's relatives from someone they did not know. Made to her parents, brother-in-law and husband Richard, the calls lasted only a few seconds before the caller hung up. They did not speak at any point. When the communication was investigated, the numbers from which the calls were made were not published in any publicly available directory. Still, interestingly, they were written in a file of facts that Shirley owned. Was it possible that either Shirley knew her abductor, or did she have some connection to them? A police spokesperson reportedly said, Clearly we have to look very carefully at the three mystery calls. It is possible someone found the list. That person could also know her whereabouts. It is also possible that they are a coincidence. We have to keep an open mind. There was a nationwide appeal to find Shirley and her car. However, initially, the police came up empty-handed. Her husband Richard told a reporter for the Daily Express, The whole thing is bizarre. We were very happy. She just seems to have vanished from the face of the earth. I'm extremely concerned about her. If anyone has seen her, I would be grateful if they would contact the police. I love her very much. Discussing the mysterious nature of the call made to his wife's office and how Shirley's disappearance had affected him, Richard Banks added, I have racked my brains to think where she might be. It is a complete mystery. I am shattered. Ominously, some reports suggested that a man was seen inside the department store watching women while they browsed the aisles searching for clothes. He was also spotted outside shortly before Shirley disappeared. Police hoped to trace this mystery man so he could be ruled out. Well, perhaps he held crucial information as to Shirley's whereabouts.
A shooting around the premises where Shirley worked was considered a possible link to her disappearance. But after an investigation, it was later ruled out as a tragic coincidence. The Avon and Somerset police turned to another constabulary for answers. There had been a series of attacks on women in London, especially those selling property. One notable case was the disappearance of estate agent Susie Lamplew, who went missing in July 1986. After visiting a property in Fulham, West London, to show around a Mr Kipper, Susie was spotted by a witness entering the home with a prospective buyer. He was well-dressed, holding a bottle of champagne. Dark hair, 20s to 30s, 5 feet 8 inches tall and reportedly driving a dark BMW. This would be the last time the 25-year-old was seen alive, or at least it's the last positive sighting according to public record. A car with her handbag inside was left abandoned nearby. As officers from Scotland Yard worked with their counterparts in the southwest, Detective Superintendent Tim Bryan, the senior investigating officer looking into Shirley Banks's disappearance, began to review the case and was made aware of another attempted abduction. On Wednesday, October 7th, the day before Shirley Banks went missing, 30-year-old recruitment administrator Julia Holman would come face-to-face with a man who had designs to abduct her. Julia had only been working in Bristol for around a month. After going out for a drink with some colleagues after work, she returned to the car park where she left her Ford Fiesta. Shortly after she sat in the driver's seat, a man armed with a handgun pulled open the door of her car and threatened her. Dressed in a grey trench coat, he was described as being 5 feet 8 inches tall, dark collar-length hair and sideburns, and between 30 to 35 years of age. Despite the best efforts of the would-be abductor, Julia fought back, striking him repeatedly in the chest with her fists. She kicked out and screamed loudly. Julia managed to shut the car door and drive off. While the man threatened her with a gun, he seemed calm and collected. His expression did not give away his intentions. Julia travelled to the closest bar and used their phone to call the authorities. The police continued in their efforts to find Shirley, who had been labelled the missing bride in the press. Three weeks after she went missing, on October 29th, officers from the Warwickshire Police Force were alerted to a suspected robbery on Regent Street in Leamington Spa. During the late afternoon, a masked man armed with an orange-handed knife threatened a shop assistant, Carmel Clearly. However, she managed to flee out of the door and attract the attention of other members of the public who gave chase, 
and some police officers nearby were flagged down. As the attacker with dark hair made his escape on foot, discarding some of his clothing and items along the way, an eagle-eyed officer saw a man close to the scene who appeared to match the build of the suspect. He was cornered and arrested. The man stood firm that he had not done anything wrong, but he was taken to the police station for questioning, and his car, a black BMW parked nearby, was seized. A discarded orange-handled knife in a black sheath and a bloody bag had been found a short distance from the clothes shop before the man was spotted. Upon inspecting his person, the man appeared to have an injury to his hand. Both Carmel Clearly and her manager, who were threatened, confirmed that he was the man holding the knife. In the suspect's BMW, a replica revolver, a length of rope and a set of handcuffs were discovered. While this at first seemed to be an unconnected incident, in a briefcase also found in the BMW, the police discovered a tax disc a piece of circular paper that a driver displayed in the window of their car to prove the vehicle had been taxed. This did not, however, relate to his BMW. It belonged to a mini-clubman, the same orange mini-clubman that had belonged to Shirley Banks, which had not been seen since her disappearance. Officers searched the suspect's home, a flat in Foy House in Lee Woods. It was around four miles west of the Broadmead shopping centre where Shirley was last seen, and a mile and a half southwest from where she lived in Clifton with her husband. Furthermore, a scene of crime officers explored the other outbuildings linked to the flat. They examined a lockup garage. Inside, they found a mini Clubman car. However, the license plate did not match the vehicle that belonged to Shirley Banks, and it was painted blue, not orange. It was only on closer inspection officers noted that the car had been crudely hand-painted, and the number plates turned out to be false. The car did belong to Shirley. The suspect's flat was dusted for prints, and while carrying out an investigation, a single thumbprint was found that did not match the homeowner. At the time, detectives wondered who it belonged to. John David Guy's Cannon had spent a good deal of his life as a salesman selling motor vehicles. In many photos, he appears well turned out. He was described by his acquaintances as clean-cut and well-spoken. But Cannon was no stranger to the police or the inside of a prison cell. The womanizer who was known for his charm could quickly turn violent. Born on February 20th, 1954, Cannon was surrounded by a loving family in the suburbs of Sutton Coldfield, 
which is located around eight miles northeast from Birmingham Centre. As a child, Cannon should have wanted for little. His father may have been stern, but his mother was always there to keep the peace. Cannon was the middle sibling to a younger brother and older sister. In his early years, he was privately educated, and it has been widely reported that around this time he said he was the victim of a sexual assault. Barely into his teens, Cannon was accused of indecent assault after he put his hands up a young woman's skirt in a phone box. He was placed on probation. After leaving school, he found employment selling cars with a certain degree of success. He exuded an air of confidence. In the late 70s, he was married to long-term girlfriend June Vale in a ceremony at Four Oaks Methodist Church in Birmingham. From the outside, it seemed the couple were happy, and Cannon's family thought very highly of John's new wife. She became pregnant, and June gave birth to the couple's daughter, Louise. John found his answers to the pressures of raising a child through alcohol, and spent many evenings drinking to excess. By spring 1980, two years into his marriage, Cannon met another woman while out in Birmingham and became besotted. The mother of two, whose identity will not be revealed in this podcast, was soon going to be divorced, and John lied, telling her he too was in the middle of a separation. Cannon and the new woman in his life agreed to relocate to Devon, where he found work and awaited her arrival. His family were devastated when they found out. But while Cannon had arranged for a new place to stay, he was told by his partner that she would not be joining him. Cannon was drinking more and more. He became irrational, jealous, and she then discovered he was still married. Furthermore, and more horrifying, it is alleged that he sexually assaulted her the night they split up. While he was questioned about the incident on multiple occasions over the next ten years, Cannon was never prosecuted. The survivor of the attack felt the police would not help her. Unaware of what Cannon had done, following the separation, June, his wife and mother to his child, wanted nothing more to do with him, nor did his family after they took her side. Cannon, who was at this point back in Birmingham but staying in a guest house, was unemployed, struggling to find work after he was fired. During the late evening of February 7th, 1981, Cannon entered a Birmingham petrol station in Yenton, close to where he was living. Armed with a knife and wearing a handkerchief over the lower part of his face, he forced his way into a petrol station and demanded what money they had in the till. It was a few hundred pounds. The two petrified girls behind the counter were told not to report the incident to the police, or he would be back. 
cannon struck again almost a month to the day on the afternoon of March 6th. Covering his face and carrying a knife, he entered a small boutique that sold knitwear in Sutton Coldfield, his hometown. He was met by the shop assistant. She was pregnant and looking after her son, who was only 17 months old. Demanding money, Cannon was immediately handed £85 from the till, but at this point the shop's co-owner walked in. She was the shop assistant's mother. They both ran the business together. She was told to lock the door. Cannon threatened both women before tying up the older woman and making her face the corner. He shouted and swore. It was then he pulled down the tights of the young pregnant woman. It was later argued by Cannon that he did this to immobilise his victim. However, Cannon would admit he became aroused. Threatening the terrified woman that he would stab her baby, she was forced to the ground. On her knees, she was made to perform oral sex in front of her child and her mother, who could not loosen her bonds. With the young woman's son getting ever more distraught, the woman pleaded with Cannon. She leant down to tend to her son, who was becoming hysterical. It was then Cannon forced her to remove more of her clothing. She was raped. The horrific ordeal was only interrupted when a series of loud knocks were heard at the locked door of the shop. It was the child's father. Cannon calmly asked where a back exit was before he stole a set of car keys and made his escape. The car was abandoned nearby, from which a purse was stolen that contained five pounds. After a successful nationwide manhunt by the West Midlands Police that included the publication of a photo fit, a week later John Cannon was tracked down. He at first denied any and all of the crimes he was suspected of, before providing a frank interview in which he told police that he was responsible for the robbery and rape in the boutique. Only a day before he was tracked down, Cannon spoke with his doctor about his depressive state and his inability to sleep. Before Birmingham Crown Court during June 1981, Cannon pleaded guilty to multiple charges. Robbery, rape, taking a motor vehicle without consent and theft. A medical report requested by a judge did not detail any abnormality of mind. Facing several consecutive sentences, Cannon received a total of eight years. Five years for the rape and three years for the robberies. This sentence was argued on appeal with Cannon's defence suggesting that the robbery and rape occurred at a crisis in Cannon's life, but this was rejected at the Royal Courts of Justice. The verdict concluded, In the judgement of this court, this was a particularly nasty rape, 
The robbery itself was bad enough, but the rape took place in a shop to which the public could have access. It took place not only in front of the victim's mother but her 17-month-old son. Although no physical injury was sustained by the complainant, the psychological consequences must be very deep indeed. Heavy sentences were wholly merited, and in the circumstances of this case where there was a robbery followed by a rape, consecutive sentences were amply justified. John Cannon was released after just five years. His wife had divorced him when he was jailed for rape. With time spent in Wormwood Scrubs, Cannon moved to a pre-release hostel in London for six months, beginning at the start of 1986, with his release scheduled towards the end of July. He then moved to Bristol. He wanted somewhere pleasant where he could find work, and no one knew his name or his past. It was while working Cannon was tracked down by detectives. They wanted to speak to him in connection with a rape that had occurred in Reading on October 6, 1986. He was arrested and provided samples of his blood and saliva. The semen sample had been collected from an item of the victim's clothing. However, the strength of the forensic evidence was not solid enough to mount a prosecution. Cannon claimed he was innocent. As he was now out of work again following his arrest, Cannon took an overdose and ended up spending several nights in Bristol Royal Infirmary. This spurred a move back to the suburbs of his hometown over the Christmas period before he returned to Bristol in the spring of 1987. He was having an affair with a married solicitor at the time which seemed to be the reason for his return to the southwest of England. In June 1987, after finding work, he moved into a flat at Foy House in Lee Woods. He spent many nights in the Avon Gorge Hotel which overlooks the Clifton Suspension Bridge and the River Avon. It was four months later that Shirley Banks went missing. The taxi was called to Cannon's address on the early afternoon of Friday, October 9th, the day after the last sighting of Shirley. The taxi firm reported that the call was made by a woman. However, when a driver turned up, a man with dark hair told him that the car was no longer needed. Following his arrest and the subsequent search of his flat, almost a month after Shirley Banks disappeared, John Cannon appeared before a judge at Bristol Magistrates Court. He was at first charged with theft, relating to Shirley's mini along with a charge of assault with intention to rob concerning the incident in Leamington Spa on October 29th. Only days later at the same magistrate's, he was also charged with the attempted abduction of Julia Holman. With rumours abound in the press about Cannon's connection to Shirley given that her car, albeit disguised, was found in the garage he owned, Cannon denied that he had any involvement in her abduction or death. 
What's more, his solicitor James Moriarty was quick to address the speculation that Cannon was linked to another high-profile missing persons case. Speaking about Cannon, Moriarty said, My client wishes it to be known that he emphatically denies any connection with the disappearance of Shirley Banks, save insofar as he is charged with the theft of that lady's car and two other separate matters on which I can make no further comment. Further, he denies emphatically any connection with the disappearance of a Miss Susie Lamplew. My client is adamant that he has never, to the best of his knowledge, met Mrs. Banks or Miss Lamplew. It was not long before the courts of Bristol magistrates were greeted by a familiar face in a new hearing. In his third court appearance, which lasted a few minutes the following day, John Cannon was charged with the alleged abduction of Shirley Banks in Bristol or elsewhere on October 8th. The police were not entirely sure where she was. Still, they were certain Cannon was the man responsible, forcibly abducting her against her will. Cannon's counsel made no application for bail. After several more court hearings, During November, in his sixth appearance in less than a month, Cannon faced even more charges. However, they did not relate to his criminal activity during 1987. They were charges of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm and indecent assault, which was said to have occurred at the end of December 1980 in Sutton Coldfield. However, these charges would never go to trial. While the Avon and Somerset police considered their options as Shirley was nowhere to be found, Cannon was eventually charged with her murder two days before Christmas 1987. In a somewhat unexpected request during the hearing, John Cannon petitioned the judge if he could be provided with the facilities to hold the press conference. Unsurprisingly, this was denied. The police started to build their case against Cannon, however they would have to do so without a body. A spokesperson for the constabulary said, The fact that we have charged a man with murder doesn't mean we have given up the search for Shirley. Finding her is still our number one priority. Along with the countless poster appeals asking members of the public to come forward if they had seen Shirley, the police also issued photos of the clothing Shirley had purchased. The constabulary also released pictures of four keys which they hoped someone might recognise and could offer some clue as to where Shirley might be, if she was still alive. Found at Cannon's home, it was postulated the keys could very well belong to rented or borrowed accommodation. The first was a bronze Yale-type key marked with HDIA and printed with the word Caswells. A silver mortise key marked with Union Parks and M159. There was also a silver key stamped with the letters PES and another flat silver key that detectives believed might unlock a garage or locker. 
the Royal Air Force were drafted in to help with the search as they carried out low flybys using a Canberra over the open fields of the southwest countryside. With specialist equipment, service members could scan large swathes of land, attempting to pinpoint if any areas of Earth had been displaced. Forty potential spots were identified for further analysis. One location just over 30 miles from Bristol in the Somerset countryside was the Quantock Hills. Tracker dogs were utilised as the police combed the area. Still, there was no sign of a body. That was until Sunday, April 3rd, 1988. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order.
That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Around six months after Shirley Banks had disappeared, on Sunday, April 3rd, Jill Hooper from the Somerset town of Langport was out with her family in the Quantock Hills. She was collecting moss for some hanging baskets. The spot, not easily accessible, was located below an embankment. As she walked through a rivulet that descends from a hill at a place called Bar's Bottom, she stumbled upon what she at first thought was a dummy used by a dressmaker, floating face down in a shallow stream. Along with her husband Basil, Jill Hooper walked towards the pool of water that had formed in a ditch. She soon realised that it was the body of a woman. Badly decomposed and covered in mud with her hair matted, the naked body showed signs of severe bruising. A distinct blue earring was visible through the water and two rings were still on her fingers. A necklace was also found. Jill Hooper rushed from the scene and was met by forest ranger Bob Garrett, who was with his wife Helen. They were told of the distressing news. The area was quickly sealed off, and a large number of police officers combed the scene looking for further clues. Soil samples were taken for analysis. After a police doctor arrived, the naked body was carefully removed from the icy waters. Dental impressions were taken and compared against those on file. The police broke the news to Shirley's husband, who had spent the last half a year wondering if his wife's body would ever be found. It's almost a sense of relief in a way that six months of... uh uncertainty and and really mystery um, are behind us now. At this stage we're doing what we always have done, which is take every day as it comes and deal with uh, the problems as they crop up. Obviously my loyalties and my priorities lie with looking after as best I can Shirley's sisters and also comforting her family and also my own family. And uh, one would hope that we will Richard Banks confirmed that the jewellery discovered at the scene belonged to his wife, which included her wedding band along with a gold ring on which sat an amethyst stone, given to her by Shirley's great-aunt. Assistant Chief Constable John Harland of the Avon and Somerset Police Force spoke to journalists. We now have a situation where we can positively uh, provide you with the information that uh, the body uh, discovered uh, was, indeed is that, of Shirley Banks. The Guardian newspaper reporting on the discovery and difficulties in the investigation interviewed Assistant Chief Constable Harland. He said, This has been a long and arduous task, and the investigation has been a problem for some period. Our sympathy goes out to the family and relatives 
and in particular Mrs. Banks's husband Richard, who has had a very, very trying time over a number of months. At the moment, we don't know how Mrs. Banks died. There were a number of injuries to the body, and there is no indication at this stage that she was sexually assaulted. In a tragic coincidence, Shirley's body was discovered only a short distance from a gully, Dead Woman's Ditch, a place where two centuries earlier another woman had been found murdered. Police have been conducting a finger search of the Quantock Hills. It's believed they've found some clues but are refusing to say whether they're significant. An inquest into Mrs Banks's death will open in Wellington in Somerset this afternoon. Meanwhile, detectives investigating the case of missing London estate agent Susie Lamplew are examining a file sent to them by Avon and Somerset Police. A post-mortem was completed, and the pathologist highlighted that the suspected cause of death was due to several blows to the head, made with what was concluded to be a large rock. In the attack, the victim was left with almost half a dozen lacerations to her scalp, which were inflicted when she was alive. Location and exposure to the elements made it nearly impossible to provide an accurate period in which that occurred. The skin was distorted and had been ravaged by animals, possibly foxes. There were no signs of any clothing. The body was bloated, but the weight before death could be around nine stone. The height was listed as five feet three inches. The Shirley's body was found below an embankment. It was entirely plausible that a fall from that height may have caused some of the head injuries, but not all. It was postulated at the time that perhaps Shirley had been pushed from a car. A report produced by Professor Bernard Knight, who carried out the examination, would later be read aloud during an inquest. Quite. The fractures of the skull were very severe indeed and suggest crushing with a heavy object. Together with the multiple lacerations, repeated blows with a heavy stone is a reasonable possibility. I don't believe that being washed around in a relatively small stream could cause such massive skull fractures. In a press conference at Bridgewater Police Station, Avon and Somerset Detective Superintendent Tim Bryan told a room packed full of reporters that there is no indication at this stage of sexual assault, but inquiries into forensic matters are still continuing. There's little doubt that Shirley's body had been lying in the shallow stream for some time. It was naked, badly decomposed and had head injuries, so identification was difficult. Police did find jewellery on the body which helped to establish the identity, but it took until late yesterday afternoon to be absolutely sure after dental records had been checked. Police say they're not looking for any more bodies, but they are passing information to the Metropolitan Police Squad investigating the death of estate agent Susie Lamplew. We, we have a very close relationship with the uh, Susie Lamplew investigation team and certainly they will be receiving all the information that we glean from the incidents in the last few days. 
a stroke of luck for the investigation. Although Shirley's body was in a state of severe decomposition, they managed to obtain a thumbprint. This was compared against the thumbprints found in Shirley's home, and they came back as a match. What's more, this thumbprint matched that of a mystery print lifted from John Cannon's flat. While the exact details of what happened to Shirley Banks were a mystery, as no one had witnessed Shirley walking to her car, some investigating officers were of the opinion that during the evening of October 8th, 1987, realising they were alone, the suspect struck. Armed with a weapon, either a replica firearm or a knife, they forced Shirley into the Mini. She was held at the suspect's address, where she was attacked, then transported to the spot where her body was found half a year later. Another possible theory considered by detectives was that the person responsible abducted Shirley soon after she had arrived and parked up outside the spot where she had planned to meet her husband. They believe that person to be John Cannon. On April 15th, 1988, Shirley Banks was laid to rest. In a private ceremony held in Martok, a village in Somerset not far from where Shirley grew up in Yeovil, the service was attended by only family and close friends. Richard Banks followed the coffin into the church accompanied by Shirley's two sisters and her parents, George and Liz Reynolds. One of the many tributes left in honour of Shirley came from the mother and father of Susie Lamplew. At the start of April 1989, John Cannon would go to trial for the murder of Shirley Banks. The jury of eight women and four men at Exeter Crown Court were told that not only was a tax disc that belonged to Shirley found in Cannon's car, but her car, a mini clubman, that had been painted was also found in his garage. Additionally, her thumbprint was found on paperwork in the property. Prosecutor Paul Chad QC stated that Richard Banks recalled seeing John Cannon at the Avon Gorge Hotel where Richard used to drink with his wife. Banks would later testify that he saw Cannon at the hotel more than once and had even picked out Cannon during a police lineup. It was suggested Cannon had stalked Shirley for at least several weeks before the attack. As he gave evidence, Richard Banks firmly gripped the side of the witness box, looking over at Cannon who was standing in the dock. It was alleged on October 22nd, almost three weeks after Shirley went missing, Cannon took a grey blood-stained trench coat to a dry cleaner's in Sutton Coldfield, and a few days later he went out to buy the material needed to repaint Shirley's car. Although John Cannon had been arrested and charged with 16 offences in all, when committed for trial, 
he would not be prosecuted for all of them. Cannon submitted a not guilty plea for the eight charges he faced. They related to the abduction and murder of Shirley Banks, the attempted abduction of Julia Holman, and an abduction, rape and sexual assault which the prosecution alleged occurred on October 6, 1986, almost a year to the day before the murder of Shirley Banks and the attempted abduction of Julia Holman. Cannon had only been out of prison for ten weeks after he was convicted of rape and robbery. In a harrowing account, another victim told the police how after an argument she had with her husband, she went for a drive late at night and pulled up on a side street in the Chantry Green area of Reading. This was not out of character. On the odd occasion when the couple had an argument, one of them would leave the marital home briefly before they reconciled. Taking a moment so she could calm down, the woman decided to briefly read a book under the light of a lamppost when a well-dressed passerby interrupted her asking for directions. With her attention diverted, as she reached for a map, the man forced his way into the car and at knife point told the woman to get into the back seat. She complied as the man told her he was going to stab her in the stomach if she did not do what he said. He said he wanted sex. With his victim in the back seat, the man pulled on gloves and a balaclava. They drove west for almost 20 minutes to an isolated industrial estate. The woman was asked for her name, but when the abductor was asked his... He simply replied, Just call me Horse. When he was confident the area was deserted, the assailant climbed into the back seat. He raped her. He remained calm and smoked a cigarette. He carried out another brutal assault on his terrified victim. Once the ordeal was over, he drove to Reading train station. Before exiting the vehicle, he seemed forensically aware. He had on a pair of white cotton gloves and wiped down the steering wheel and areas of the car his hands had touched. Kissing his victim on the cheek, he whispered, Goodbye. Be good. And if you can't be good, be careful. The law quickly caught up with the person responsible after the survivor was presented with a book of mugshots. However, she could not be 100% sure. She had pointed out John Cannon. Cannon claimed that he had an alibi and was staying in Sutton Coldfield. He also offered up forensic samples. The police undertook analysis on a semen stain found in the victim's underwear. At the time, DNA testing was in its infancy, and the results suggested the chances that Cannon was the man responsible were one in several thousand. Initially, the CPS felt this result was not strong enough. 
as the survivor could not be entirely sure of her attacker's identity, Cannon was released. However, as DNA testing came on leaps and bounds in the period between Cannon allegedly committing the crime and the murder of Shirley Banks, the sample was retested. The results now showed that the chances of it being anyone else except John Cannon or someone related to him were 1 in 260 million. Julia Holman would also address the jury at Exeter Crown Court. She recounted how a man attempted to abduct her at gunpoint. The witness had identified Cannon as that man in a lineup at Bristol Central Police Station. She knew it was him the minute he walked into the room. Describing what happened and how she fought back, Julia Holman said, I put the key into the ignition, but I didn't have a chance to put on my safety belt when the car door opened and I saw a gentleman standing there. He leant down into the car and produced a handgun. He pointed it at me and told me if I did what he said, I would not get hurt. He said nothing else, but with the motion of the gun, I got the impression he wanted me to move across into the passenger seat. At that stage, I didn't feel frightened. I was very angry and felt, how dare this man do this to me? I'm not going to do what he says. I lashed out. I hit him with my hands. I made contact with his chest and pushed him and swore at him. I turned my body round to kick him, but it was only my hands that made contact, not my feet. I was surprised at this reaction. He very calmly stepped back, and I was able to close the door. Further describing the type of man John Cannon was, married solicitor Annabelle Rose had had a brief affair with the defendant. She was assigned his case when he was in prison following the rape in Sutton Coldfield during March 1981. Cannon sought to see his daughter after his release. Shaking almost violently from the stand, trying unsuccessfully to hold back the tears, Annabelle Rose spoke of how she ended the intimate relationship in August 1987. Cannon threatened her and her family. Pale faced, the witness described a grey trench coat which she had seen when the two had been to Ashton Court Estate, where they went for a romantic walk. This was the same coat that Cannon was said to have taken to a dry cleaner's covered in blood. The witness did not recall there being any stains on the item of clothing when she saw it. John Cannon did mention the affair to a DCI Brian Saunders when the defendant was interviewed. He told the officer the reason why it ended was that he put too much pressure on Annabelle Rose to leave her husband. Unsurprisingly, there was no mention of the threats made. DCI Saunders pleaded with Cannon while he was in custody 
to tell the police where he had left Shirley's body. Cannon denied his involvement and claimed that the detective was mistaken. Amelia Hart was another witness who testified for the prosecution. Along with her husband George on the afternoon of October 9th, 1987, a day after Shirley disappeared, Amelia was travelling to visit some friends that live near the coast. The married couple journeyed past Foy House, the flats where John Cannon lived, and approached a small wooded close. They had spotted smoke. They thought it might be a fire that had got out of control. The pensioners decided to take a detour to find out what had happened. They saw no sign of a blaze. However, in the distance, Amelia saw a man with dark, curly hair. He was attacking someone on the ground. Amelia then heard a woman's voice scream, No, no. From the car, the witness wasn't able to identify who the victim was. However, she was screaming in pain, begging for the attacker to stop. The man shouted at her, I warned you what would happen. I told you what I would do. The punches and kicks continued before the man leaned down and began to choke the person on the floor. It was soon after this that Amelia Hart made attempts to intervene, shouting from the car window. The man, now on his hands and knees and out of breath, shouted before the terrified couple drove off at speed. Junior Defence Counsel Timothy Raggett QC highlighted that the witness did not report the incident straight away. However, from the witness stand, Amelia Hart said that she was scared and in shock. Raggett suggested this might have been a figment of her imagination. She spoke with the police around a month later. He pointed out Amelia Hart's report to the police was only made after dark-haired John Cannon's arrest. A video made by a Bristol dating agency was played to the jury. It pictured John Cannon, who referred to himself as John Peterson. In the video filmed for Suter, a video dating agency, Cannon seemed very sure of himself. Over a period of several minutes, recounting a fantasy, Cannon saw himself as a pirate. I think a ruff would suit me. Tights and a sword, he said. I can see myself on some bridge of some galleon like a pirate. I have a dislike of inflated egos. Mm -hmm. Um, People who are, they look at me, I'm great type. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I I can't handle that sort of inner weakness. The kind of pretension. Yeah, I don't like that at all. I just like just normal average people. What do you look for in a pervert of the opposite sex? I mean, personally, what attracts you? Well, I think apart from the physical mm-hmm. side, um, 
again, I think somebody who's pleasant, mm -hmm. who's natural, um, who's relaxed, somebody who's calm, you're just not, pleasant, you're just not somebody nice. You're not career orientated. You're no, quite... no, 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 no. Well, as somebody who's career orientated myself, I couldn't mm -hmm. blame them for that. Yeah. Um, no, no, not at all. Now, do you admire any famous people, Pastor President? Yes, I've admired a few. Um, people like Gandhi, yeah. philosophers like Bertrand Russell. Following his arrest, Cannon was interviewed by Detective Chief Inspector Brian Saunders and spoke about his relationships and the dating agency the defendant had joined. Cannon voiced his frustrations and the fact he wanted to meet someone for a serious relationship. He did not wish to participate in another affair. Cannon admitted he drank to excess and sometimes couldn't recall who he had slept with. The form Cannon completed for the dating agency read that he was a born romantic, fascinated in philosophy, hoping to do a degree. However, and most importantly to him, he had no interest in meeting any redheads. He claimed the agency was inundated with calls after he made his video. Speaking about his relationship with women, Cannon told the detective, I try to live as varied an existence as possible. I am a firefly around a tree that goes for sparkle and glitter. Anything that shines, I am there. Cannon went from relationship to relationship. He did not want women in his life to find out about his criminal record. Asked why if he was so successful with the opposite sex, he needed a dating agency. Cannon replied, I lead a rather lonely life. You must not think that I've got a bird in my bed every day. That is not true. The jury would get to see the property where Cannon lived after a request from both jurors and prosecutor Paul Chad QC. John Cannon, who still protested his innocence, stayed in a prison van outside as the jury were given a tour of his flat and the adjoining garage. They were also shown the wooded area where it had been claimed by witness Amelia Hart that she saw a man attacking someone as they lay on the ground pleading for their life. Despite the fact that Shirley's thumbprint was found on paperwork in his flat, Cannon was resolute that he did not know her, nor had she been to his flat. Cannon argued that he had bought Shirley's mini from a man he didn't know for £125, but was unaware of who it belonged to. He was reportedly informed by an anonymous telephone call. When he realised the car was Shirley's, he said that he wanted to get rid of it. Cannon felt he was unable to tell the police of the discovery, as he thought they would assume he had stolen it and killed her. In 
the man leading the defence, Anthony Palmer QC, told the court, We call no evidence. John Cannon chose not to take the stand. The jury heard from over 100 witnesses. Not a single one spoke in court on behalf of the defendant. However, Palmer said that the doubts in the case against his client were overwhelming. He told the 12 jurors they should not be swayed by the dramatic and theatrical language being used by the prosecutor. Cannon should not be judged on his decision not to give evidence. Palmer also asked the jury to question why Shirley Banks had called into work to say she was sick and she did not sound scared. He proposed that if his client were guilty, it did not make sense for Cannon to allow Shirley to call into her place of employment. It was understood that John Cannon was a stranger to Shirley Banks. The final hours of her life would forever remain a mystery. It was alleged by the prosecution that after Cannon abducted her, she was taken to his flat where she was trapped. He forced her to phone her place of work and call in sick. Detectives were of the belief that Cannon may have convinced Shirley that if she made the phone call, she would be let go. Perhaps he placated Shirley by allowing the call to a taxi firm before she was incapacitated. Following three weeks of evidence, the judge, Mr Justice Drake, offered his summation of the case. But as soon as he started speaking from the dock, John Cannon interrupted. I did want to give evidence. I just want the truth to come out. The jury are not being given the truth. Cannon eventually calmed down and the proceedings continued. On April 27, 1989, the jury needed five hours to reach a decision on the charges of kidnap, rape and sexual assault, which the prosecution alleged were committed by John Cannon during the start of October 1986. He was found guilty. The decision for the attempted kidnap of Julia Holman and the kidnap and murder of Shirley Banks was made a day later. John Cannon was found guilty on all charges. Flanked by two security guards, the colour had drained from Cannon's face, which showed little emotion. On October the 8th, Shirley left her office to go shopping in Debenhams in Bristol city centre. She was due to meet her husband at the Avon Gorge Hotel later for dinner, but she never arrived. Somewhere on the way, John Cannon met and abducted her. Stand up, said Mr Justice Drake to John Cannon after the jury had delivered its verdicts. The court had already heard Cannon's long history of sex crimes that included an eight-year jail sentence for forcing a woman at knife point in Sutton Coldfield into degrading sex acts after tying up her mother and threatening her baby's life. 
Cannon, who'd gone back on a decision to make his own plea in mitigation, stood mutely in the dock, head bowed and looking at last rather haggard and cowed, his hands clasped in front of him. Shirley's family, her father and stepmother and two sisters, sat pale and tense, hardly relaxing, their faces drawn by emotion. As the judge reached his final words... In the silence of the courtroom, Judge Drake told Cannon, You have been found guilty on overwhelming evidence of a series of most terrible offences involving three different women. Those were monstrous crimes, and I shall recommend the period you spend in prison should be the period of your life. You should never again be at liberty outside a prison wall. You appear to be a very intelligent man, It is obvious you have shown considerable charm and are extremely attractive to some women. You have the ability, and you have had normal, perfect relationships with a number of women. But that does not satisfy you. Under the veneer of charm lies the most evil, violent and horrible side to your character. It may well amount to an obsession of enjoying sexual acts by force or by threat of force. And if the woman does not submit, there is a danger that you will become violent. For his crimes, John Cannon was handed multiple life sentences for the murder of Shirley Banks and abduction, rape and sexual assault of a woman in Reading. For the abduction of Shirley, he was sentenced to 14 years and faced the same sentence for the attempted abduction of Julia Holman a day before. When Cannon was led from the dock down to the cells, muttering words to himself with the rest of his life behind bars stretching ahead, his dark staring eyes, hooded by thick eyebrows, flicked up towards where Shirley's family sat. It's a face they may never be able to forget. John Cannon's younger brother Anthony offered little sympathy towards his sibling, telling a reporter for the Liverpool Echo that the brotherly bond between them was dead. He suggested that his brother should be, quote, dangling from the end of a rope for what he has done, but even that would be too good for him. If there were such a punishment, the rope should not be around his neck, but around his testicles. Anthony Cannon went on to say, I think it's a waste of taxpayers' money to keep him in prison. I hope he is never released. He is a dangerous man, and women would not be safe with him around. Liz Reynolds, Shirley's mother, was interviewed outside the court. I was just so relieved that he couldn't do something so horrible to anybody else. Because Shirley was such a lovely person. There was nothing horrible about her at all. And it just seemed so tragic that somebody could do something so awful that I just felt relief. Shirley's father, George, was also interviewed about John Cannon and his feelings towards his daughter's killer. I think it's important uh, to us, as it is to everyone, that, uh, that he is uh, put away and uh, that society is protected uh, from him. But 
we try to avoid feelings like revenge and hatred. These, these will not bring our daughter back. Detective Chief Inspector Brian Saunders commended the work carried out by the Avon and Somerset police. He spoke about interviewing John Cannon and how he made sure the suspect confirmed that the paperwork on which vital evidence would be found had never left John Cannon's flat. Knowing that the fingerprint was on the document, I asked him had he ever seen the document, the objective being really to find out where it had been while it was in his possession. He said time after time that it had never left the flat. So there we are, he's telling me that, and then I suddenly present him with the fact that it's got Shirley's thumbprint on it. The investigation was one of Avon and Somerset Constabulary's most complex and expensive inquiries. Around 100 officers and over four dozen task force members worked the 17-month investigation that had approximately 2,000 lines of inquiry. They utilised HOMES, the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, a searchable computer database capable of linking words, names, dates, locations, descriptions and victims. Police even undertook the unusual step of releasing Cannon's photo without his name two months into the investigation. They gave no information about what he had done, other than ask the public if they knew him or had business dealings with him. They received several hundred calls throughout England from people who wanted to help. At the time, the police would not identify the victims or suspects in rape trials, as the law prohibited identification unless they were convicted. In 1988, this entitlement was repealed for suspects. The publication of Cannon's face was, however, argued to be prejudicial by his defence counsel during the trial, although the constabulary felt they needed to take this step due to the, quote, gravity of the inquiry. On the subject of the man that had just been sentenced to life behind bars, DCI Saunders said, He led a dual life. He could be charming and polite on one hand, and evil and violent on the other. The fact that such an evil man is no longer able to stalk the streets gives me satisfaction. John Cannon appealed his sentence the following year, with his counsel Anthony Palmer arguing that as his client was being tried for multiple crimes, that would have a detrimental effect on the minds of the jury. However, three appeal court judges, which included the then Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane, that there was no need for separate trials, as the evidence against Cannon was overwhelming. It was noted that Cannon should serve at least a minimum term of 35 years behind bars, and Lord Lane also commented that he was not sure if Cannon would ever be in a position to be released. Agreeing with this decision, the Secretary of State felt that the tariff of three and a half decades was fair. Since his conviction in 1989, 
the time Cannon was to serve behind bars has been reviewed by several appeal court judges. However, as they could not identify any mitigating factors that could possibly reduce the minimum term, the sentence would not be changed, other than take into account the 17 and a half months he had spent on remand before the trial. Richard Banks tried to move on after his wife died. He remained in Bristol, but sold the home he shared with Shirley. He spoke with a reporter for the Daily Express. I haven't been living. I've been existing. My emotions range from rage and hatred to unbearable memories of Shirley and what we had together. She wasn't only my wife. She was my best friend. I miss her. I miss her all the time. And thinking about her is a joy and a misery at the same time. On the subject of his wife and the man that took her life, Richard Banks would later say, Shirley was the most gorgeous woman you could imagine. She's just what he would like to have on his arm. It's almost as if he had been watching us. An estate agent I know said he had been after a property in the same row as where Shirley and I were living. So where are we now? John Cannon is currently in prison. That does not necessarily mean that he has been brought to justice for all his crimes. Estate agent Susie Lamplew vanished towards the end of July 1986. She was last seen in West London with a prospective property buyer. A neighbour who witnessed the two people enter the property believed the male matched John Cannon's description. A police sketch bears a similar resemblance. While he was finishing his sentence for robbery and rape in 1986, Cannon had been working as part of a pre-release scheme from a hostel in West London that ended only three days after the last reported sighting of Susie. A few months after his failed appeal for the murder of Shirley Banks, Susie's mother Diana Lamplew voiced her opinion that John Cannon was responsible for her daughter's death. Susie Lamplew was officially declared dead in 1994. However, despite numerous interviews with Cannon, public appeals and multiple searches of a property as recently as 2018, which belonged to Cannon's mother in the suburbs where he was raised, There is currently no forensic evidence that points to John Cannon's involvement. The mystery of who killed Susie Lamplew remains unsolved. Thank you for listening. 
A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Joanna Wright, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Don't forget, we will be appearing at CrimeCon, which is coming to London on Saturday, June 12th and Sunday, June 13th, 2021. For details, visit crimecon.co.uk and make sure to use the promo code TWAU to receive not only a special 10% discount, but we will also be giving away either an exclusive t-shirt or tote bag which you can pick up directly from us during the convention. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.